Let's pray together. Our good and our holy God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the gift of worship, chance to sing and to give and to greet, to pray. And God, we're grateful that you are alive and that you speak to your people, that you call us, you command us, you encourage and correct us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give a light for our path. And Lord, as we open it together, we humbly yet boldly ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us hearts that are tender that would receive your word as seed planted in good soil. Lord, we pray that you make our hands strong that our deeds in this world would be as yours. Lord, we pray that you give us feet that walk quickly to do your will. Lord, we pray that a word of life, hope, would be found on our tongues. Lord, this is our prayer in the strong name of Jesus. And we pray together as a family of faith saying, amen and amen. Friends, please be seated. And as you're seated, if you find your Bibles and turn with me to First Chronicles chapter 21 and 22. It's been a long time since you've been in First Chronicles. It's on page 328 in my Bible. I might give you a bit of an orientation. Uh, this is our second week in the message series, The Big Project. We're talking about how God uh, worked in the lives of his people uh, to build that great temple. Uh, we call it the Temple of Solomon. And in that story in the Bible, there are tons of important life lessons. Uh, lessons about life with God. Last week we learned and we were reminded maybe uh, that God is a living God, that God is a God of promise, uh, and that God interacts with us and, and calls us and corrects us and, and, and works with us to do the things that he's called us to do. We learned that we are to be a people of initiative uh, and reverence, a flexible people that will respond to his yes, that will respond to his no. And today we gather back in the text uh, and we learn the importance of place. Maybe it's appropriate that we dedicated Christians, little boy today, a realtor uh, in our area, because we're going to talk about the importance of what the three big words, come on Camille, shout them out, the three most important words in real estate are location, location, location. Location does matter. Place does matter. Uh, and when we come to the 22nd chapter of First Chronicles, the first verse, it says, Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord, God, and here the altar of the burnt offering uh, to God. He said, This is it. This is the place. Right here. That sentence began with then. Which means there's a big story a big story before we get to this. There's a lot of things that happened to get to this. To this place where we knew where God would have his people build the temple, there was a story. And that story is important. And the lessons today that we'll gather from it are important because God is still building a temple. The New Testament calls us the temple of the living God as followers of Jesus, both individually and collectively. And I was taught in Mission Friends. Do you remember Mission Friends? The best song that I've ever sung, and that is He's Still Working on Me. You know that one? It's a terrible song, but it's got great theology in it. 
because God is working on us. And that is the big project. God is building your life, and he's building our life together. And there's important principles for us in God's word. And today we'll look at the importance of place. So let's go back to the story beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21. It says, Satan stood up against Israel. That's bad news. And incited David to count the people of Israel. That's worse news. So David said to Joab, the commanders of the army, go number Israel from, from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report so that I may know their number. But Joab said, my Lord, the increase the number of his people a hundredfold, uh, and they not, my Lord the king, all of them, all of them my Lord's servants. Why then should my Lord require this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. The king's word normally does. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. Joab gave the total count of the people to David. And all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. God was displeased with this thing. And he struck Israel. David said to God, I've sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now I pray you take away the guilt of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. The Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer to you. Choose one of them so that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Take your choice. Either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while their sword or your enemy overtakes you or three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to the one who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is very great, but let me not fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 persons fell in Israel, and God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But when he was about to destroy it, the Lord took note and relented concerning the calamity. He said to the destroying angel, Enough! Stay your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing by the threshing, threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. David looked up and he saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David said to the elders clothed in sackcloth, and fall on your faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave the command to count the people? It is I who sinned and have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let your people be plagued. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to tell David that he should go and erect an altar of the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up following Gad's instructions, which had spoken in the name of the Lord. Ornan turned and saw the angel, and while his four sons who were with him hid themselves, Ornan continued to thresh wheat. That's a tough dude. 
and David came to Ornan. Ornan looked and saw David. He went out from the threshing floor and did uh, obedience or obeisance to, uh, before, before David, his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price so that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it. And let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I present the offering of oxen and burnt offerings and the threshing of sledges for the wood and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. But David said to Ornan, No, I will buy them at full price. I will not take for the lord what is yours. No offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and offerings of well-being. He called upon the Lord, and he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back in his sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he made his sacrifices there for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness. And the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high places at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of the Lord, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of the burnt offering of Israel. Friends, that's a weird story. That's a tough one. Uh, it's a story about the, the place where the temple would, would be built. And it's a gritty, tough, tough story. But there's so much in it for us. So I would just encourage you over the next few minutes to just jot down some of these things because I believe God has a word for us uh, as we revisit these pages. Uh, because this is about building lives, building the dwelling place of God. One thing that we can take from this is that we've got to learn how to live life on the attack. To be belligerents against the adversary and against the sin that is so pervasive in our own life. We talked last week about that great character who, who chased a lion into a pit on the snowy day uh, in order to free God's people from that menace. Uh, that sanctified initiative. And we need to have that type of sanctified initiative uh, as we go about the living of our days. Uh, the first sentence of this story began, and Satan rose up to entice David. So you have in the, the, very, the very beginning of this important phase of this big project, the adversary rising up to mess with, frustrate, tempt, badger, the whole entire process. And David became complicit. We have to recognize, friends, that our lives are lives that are the focus of dark interest, that we live in a situation and a place and a time because it's always been this way where God's adversary would have us live lives less than the lives God has intended us to live. You say, Matt, do you really believe that? I do. 
I absolutely do. And when you go back in the Scripture, you see that lived out in the, in the Old, in the New Testament. And, and the verse here in, in chapter 21, Satan stood up against Israel. And Satan stands up against the project that God has in your life. And we've got to learn to be people on the offensive. Peter, writing to the church uh, in 1 Peter, as he was calling them uh, to a life of faith and faithfulness, he called them to cast their anxieties uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verse 7, on God, knowing that God cares for us. And then he says this in verse 8, Discipline yourselves, keep alert like a roaring lion. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him, steadfast in your faith. Just like David's bodyguard who saw that lion, he recognized the threat and he ran toward that challenge with sanctified initiative. And we've got to recognize that in our life, there's a roaring lion bent bent on devouring us and we've got to rise up with that same type of commitment came to a place where he said this is it but before that he had an experience of darkness that changed him that changed him so we've got to learn how to go on attack against satan but you say matt uh, isn't that just sort of a bogus way to excuse yourself for a whole lot of stupid stuff yeah, I mean, Flip Wilson, some of you are way too young, but Flip Wilson used to go around saying, what, the devil made me do it. Say, can I get off the hook if I just go ahead and admit there's the reality uh, of, of satanic power and influence, and I just get off the hook by saying the devil made me do it? Can't I do that? Can't I just do that? No. There is influence, but the sin that comes is our own doing, and we are culpable. Uh, Greg Boyd in his book, Satan and the Problem of Evil, said it like this. He said, It cannot be denied that appeals to Satan and demons are often illegitimately made in order to deny personal responsibility for sinful behavior. Indeed, this lame excuse is literally the oldest one in the book. Genesis chapter 3, verse 13. So there is this real challenge that comes but it's lame to say the devil made me do it. Because the other foe that roars like a lion is the power of sin in our life. This lion reared up early in the Bible. And there's a beautiful image. Uh, and it, it comes from Genesis uh, chapter uh, 3. You have this story, uh, chapter 4. You have this story about Cain and Abel. You remember this story? Uh, and this is what happens. Uh, it says, The Lord said to Cain, uh, chapter 4, verse 6. Why are you angry? What, what are you in such a bad mood about? What's, what's going on? And why is your countenance falling? Why are you pouting? What's going on in your heart? What's going on in your mind? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, watch this. Sin is lurking at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. So you have this guy. His heart's bent. He's angry. He's upset. He's fuming. He's pouting. And God says, what's going on? 
He said, you don't have to go down this path, this path that's, that's being churned up in your heart. You don't have to do this. He said, if you, if you do right, if you bring, you bring your life to me, that things can be different, things can, can be better. You don't have to do this. But if you do, know this, that sin is lurking at your door, crouching at your door. I'll never forget uh, the first Hebrew class I had was in this sort of uh, wood grain panel room, this tiny little room at William Carey College, Dr. Dorman Laird. He's a little small guy with bow ties. He drove a Studebaker, uh, a centric old professor, uh, and, and we, were, we were translating these verses. And he talked about this, this image, this image of lurking sin, how you have this, this beast of prey just sort of waiting to get you. And if you're not alert... If you're not wise, that line will have you for lunch. We have to learn to go on the attack. The beginning scene in Larry Brown's novel, Dirty Work, uh, there is a scene about a lion hunting warthogs. I'd like to read you just a little portion of that. I seen one jerk a warthog out of a hole one time. Tried to catch him, and, and they run in this hole. Old big lion, big black mane, had this, had this hole that they run under in this bank. Old lion didn't get upset, didn't do nothing but lay down on the top of that bank. He was waiting, see? Wanted an easy meal. Old lion, he laid there looking like he was, was thinking about taking him a nap. Wasn't even paying attention Knowing them warthogs couldn't stand it. Knowed one of them was going to have to stick his head out in a minute and see, was he gone? He just kept laying there. And directly, one of them warthogs stuck his nose out, sniffing around, ain't nothing dumber than a pig. I have been dumber than a pig. There's more degrees in this room than on any common thermometer. We could start our own university this afternoon. Just cut and run, start it right here in this room. Smart people. And everybody on every pew has been dumber than a warthog. Sin crouches at our door. We've got to learn to go on the offensive. The devil didn't make him do it, but Satan did influence him. And he walked a path that God wouldn't have him walk. You say, man, what was the big deal about counting? What's wrong with that? Uh, I've been to Sunday school and church. You've counted me twice already. I gave an offer, and I know you're going to count that. You're mighty right we're going to count. What's wrong with counting? Doesn't counting make sense? Isn't that what smart people do, count? This was an example in David's life where he wasn't gathering knowledge. He was stretching out his ego and his pride. God has been faithful in his life. Faithful, 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 faithful. God had been with him through one opportunity after another. Uh, he had seen God's grace. And here he was just wanting to look out on it all. And he had every opportunity not to do it. 
I mean, the difference in, in a theology of the Old Testament and the pagan neighbors is that the king, the people could get in the business of the king. And, and the guy that was working for him said, you don't want to do this. This isn't right. This isn't good. And the king's will prevailed. That's the problem. And we all have to, to take, take account of those places of weakness in our own life where we just want to swell up and live our life without acknowledging that God is God and trusting God to do in our life what He can do in our life. That leads us to the second point. The first one is to attack Satan and sin. The second one is to acknowledge the authority of God. Verse 7, but God was displeased. Now this will rattle a lot of our our theology, a lot, of our, a lot of our systems, because we have a felt board Jesus that just smiles on everything we do. One that claps for everything. And the God of the Scripture often gets upset. Now look, God's not some thunderbolt chunker. I'm not talking about that. But what we have here is a, a situation where God, God, in the midst of their business, and said God was displeased. Last week we learned that God is God and there is no other. And here we're reminded of that again. And we have got to learn to acknowledge that authority. Recently I, I read a book by Donald Blesch, The Invaded Church, where he basically said there's, there's this, the two versions of Christianity emerging uh, in North America. One is a very secular sort of exianity, uh, where the church of the covered dish, as Garrison Keillor would call it. And the other is a wince of orthodoxy. Uh, that celebrates the alive and real God. We can divorce God from church, and many people want to, and what we have left is nothing. And David learned that he couldn't just do it on his own terms and have God clap for him. In his pride, in his pride, he decided to box with the living God, and he lost. And as my pastor Jim Brandon used to say to me in Mississippi and to you in Colorado, your arms are too short to box with God. So we attack Satan and sin, and we acknowledge the authority of God. And the last one, and this is beautiful, we ask for God's mercy. This is the weird part of this story. Uh, it's kind of like we do to our kids sometimes. All right, some punishment's coming you're going to get to pick. Here are your three options. That's what God essentially does with David. You pick, boy. And David, verse of pathos and beauty, he said, let me fall into the hands of God. Chapter 21, verse 13. I love the way the American Standard, that old one from 1901, renders it. It says this, I am in a great strait. You ever been there? You ever been in a great strait? I'm in a great strait. Let me fall, I pray, into the hand of Jehovah, for very great are his mercies. I like that. What's your name? I'll write it down. We need three more of you. Sometimes we just need to say, because it's true, I am in a great strait. We need to quit denying it. We need to quit building a temple around it. We need to quit acting like things are okay. We just need to admit, I am in a great strait. 
as they used to say, I'm in a bind. And it's largely of my own making. I'm in a great strait. Let me fall into hand of God. For very great are his mercies. Friends, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. And so David asked God for mercy. He asked God for forgiveness. He pleads the case of the people. He said, this is on me. This is, don't let them suffer for what I have done. He calls out to God. And God said, build an altar. Right here, go down to that Jebusite's uh, threshing floor. You go down that common threshing floor where, where this guy's working. And, and you go down there. You go down there. And you build an altar to God. So they're down there, uh, and, and, and the, the kids that are working there, the, the boys that are working, they run because there's this, this God's army with swords and all this crazy stuff that would be great in a sci-fi kind of movie. David had seen an angel over Jerusalem with a sword out. Remember we talked last week about how Jerusalem, when David built things on the top of the hill, it was brilliant politically and tactically because he, he brought the people together and he, he went to the highest defensible place. Well, above his highest achievement stood God and he recognized that. Above your highest achievement stands God, and we must recognize that. And so when God, with the sword over his highest achievement, spoke, he answered, and he said yes, and he went to that, that threshing floor, not a palace, not just adjacent to his cedar-walled house, but to the threshing floor. And he said, I've got to have this. I've got to have this. Uh, and this wonderful man, he said, well, take it all. I'll, I'll gladly give it. You take it all. He said, I will not offer God something that doesn't cost me something. He paid for the whole place, and he built that altar to God. And the scripture said, and God answered with fire. Symbol of his presence. Throughout the New Testament, as God acknowledges uh, his presence, he answers with, with fire and with grace, saying, this is it. This place in time, this moment, this is it. This is my work. This is my work that I've invited you to be part of. This is it. On Pentecost, God answered with fire. Among the Samaritans, he would later answer with fire. Among the Gentiles, he would answer with fire to say, this is it. I'm building my temple. This is it. Friends, the most common ground, the ground of our deepest failure and remorse can be sanctified by the grace of God when he answers with the fire of his mercy. It says, this is the point of all the new and beautiful things I want to do in and through you. God will answer with fire. Here's the deal. If we name the name of Christ and we say we're followers of Jesus, then what we're saying is we're living our life in concert with and in dependence on the Spirit of God in our life. 
We want every piece of ground that we occupy to be holy ground because God has touched it with his mercy and grace. And when we admit our need for him and we confess our need for him and we live humbly before him, he answers with his presence. And when we swagger around like a king without good sense, dumb as a warthog, but wearing the, the robes, the royal robes of the court, God is displeased. God wants us to live our life recognizing his presence and his goodness among us. And that occurs when we ask him for his grace and his mercy. When we sing and mean it, I need thee, oh, I need thee. How, how often? Every hour, I need thee. You see, David got to the point where he forgot that. He said, let me look and see what I got. And at the height of his success, he bottomed out. And when he got all the way down to the bottom, he found God. God who said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He found God. And he was able to say, let me fall into the hands of that God. Oh, I'm in a great strait. But very great are his mercies. God. So friends, here's the deal. We're going to sing a song. We call it a song of commitment. Some of you have made commitments this week in your, in your own heart, in your own life. You would make them publicly today. We'd invite you to come as we sing. But to everybody in this room, up top, on the sides, in the back, in the orchestra, God loves you more than you love yourself. He really, really does. And he wants to be the Lord of all of your life. He really, really does. Somebody here may just have to say in, in, the, in the tabernacle of your heart, God, I am in a great strait. And it's nobody's doing but my own. Give me your mercy, your forgiveness. And that sacred altar becomes a place where the rest of your life can be built. That's good news. God, we thank you for a chance to sing and to pray in this room. And, and Lord, I pray as we respond in song that, that Lord, that the, those that have public decisions to make or to profess, I pray that they would come and we would celebrate that. Lord, if anyone just needs to pray, Lord, I pray they'd find a, a welcoming presence here, that they would be touched by your grace. And for all of us, Lord, help us to leave this room today with a fresh commitment to throwing our lives into the arms of your mercy and confessing our need for you and to celebrating you in the midst of our life's achievements and in our failures. Lord, we thank you for being who you are and for doing what you do. We love you because you loved us first. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing and respond as God would have us.